Women on the Line, produced at 3CR, acknowledges the people of the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the lands from which we broadcast. We pay respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that this program contains the voices of people who are deceased. Welcome back to another episode of Women on the Line, a national feminist current affairs program. And it's produced by women and gender non-conforming people from 3CR Community Radio in Nam, Melbourne, on Wurundjeri country. And we're broadcast across the Community Radio Network. I'm Shahrazad Blue and welcome back. The Aboriginal Tent Embassy was founded 50 years ago on Invasion Day. January 26 in 1972. It is the world's longest ongoing protest camp. And so for today's show, in the lead up to this Invasion Day this year, we are going to air some archival audio from 1992, which was the 20th anniversary. Afterwards, we're going to play parts of a conversation on the embassy's history between Wiradjuri poet and podcaster Lorna Munro and Nyambri woman Leah House. But firstly, we're going to air some archival audio from 1992 from the staunch Aboriginal rights activists in the context of the land rights and black power movements of that time. And it's now 2022, 30 years on, and the things that people said in 92, in 82, in 72, and pretty much since white man first landed here or colonised here are ever relevant right now. Dr. Roberta Bobby Sykes was an Aboriginal rights activist who was the first executive secretary of the Tent Embassy. In this short soundbite we're going to play, she talks about the embassy's establishment and the land rights movement. Just to give a bit of context, this audio would have been recorded during or just before the colonial high court ruling on the Mabo case, which was in June of that year, which was 1992. Proceedings for the case actually started a decade earlier, in 1982. They met in the Northern Territory, but that Aborigines were exempt because most of the Northern Territory was Crown land. It never crossed their mind that Aborigines would camp on Crown land in Canberra, and that law pertained to both the ACT and the Northern Territory. So we were exempt. Within days there was um, assistance pouring in from black communities all over the place including poor black communities who really had nothing to give. They were still sending money, sending telegrams of support and stuff like that. And every day that we were there was another milestone that we'd be able to reach. And it took quite a while for us to eventually realise that there was no law under which we could be moved anyway. Well, some states have land rights and some don't. And even within states, some groups have land rights and some don't. And that's really the 
reason why there should be national land rights. Those people who have no land rights haven't got justice. But neither do those people who have land rights have justice because within the Aboriginal community there's a, the notion that they should be sharing what they've got with us because we don't have anything yet. It's creating a lot of problems in the black community. Until we get a Prime Minister who is committed to the concept of human rights and equality and the recognition of Indigenous peoples' rights, that's the way the situation is going to be. Somebody's going to be stirring up our water and when we swim around, be whirled around in it, you can't blame us that we look like we're whirling. And that was Dr Roberta Bobby Sykes speaking about the Aboriginal Tent Embassy and the land rights movement on the 20th anniversary in 92. Up next is a conversation or an excerpt, I should say, from 3CR's coverage of the 2012 Embassy's 40th anniversary. 1972 Embassy veteran, the late Auntie Pat Etock, speaks with Johnny Harding about the political climate at the time and particularly the events of that invasion day, including a story of the then Prime Minister Julia Gillard's shoe. And we'll let Auntie Pat Etock tell you about that. But just to give you a bit of context before she starts speaking, the then opposition leader on that day, on that invasion day, 10 years ago now, Tony Abbott, said that the embassy should be ripped down. And he said this 50 metres away from it. And this is the context of where the conversation starts. Finally, Pat. Thank you very much. Uh, Yes, I I became aware of a movement of people hurrying in the direction of the... uh, the, uh, what do they call that little... That cafe. Ca- yeah, it's a little a restaurant yeah. that's beside the Rose Garden. Yeah. And uh, all the politicians 40 years ago used to go there for dinner. But given that there's nothing really around here except the embassy, exactly. where, you know, the only reason for them to have decided to have their pe- press conferences at that restaurant was to, as a provocation, a provocation. A provocation, yeah, mm. to be provocative, mm. to try and get some sort of a response. So I went rushing over there on my little uh, mobility scooter because, after all, I'm pushing on a bit now. I'm 75 this year. And uh, there was a bit of shouting, you know, around outside. We weren't allowed in. But there was the usual, obviously, what you would expect, you know, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Yeah. And how we are totally disappointed. We had a right to expect better from the Labor Party, given from a Labor government, given the uh, the history of Gough, Gough Whitlam and how he gave the Gurindji the dust in their hand and talked about land rights and how badly the Labor Party has uh, continued the Northern Territory intervention. So we were there equally astonished at both of these people deciding to have a press conference so provocatively close to us. Amazing. Now, maybe they thought they could incite a riot. And there was a lot of noise and a lot of shouting, but there was certainly no, uh, no physical threats or anything like that. Yeah. So uh, then suddenly out of the side door and only about two feet away from me, this phalanx of police, about 15 or 20 police, shoved through the crowd and lo and behold, two and a half feet away from me was Julia Gillard being whooshed past me like a, like a torpedo coming out of a tube <laughs> and straight down the steps. Now, they, 
bustled her out so quickly that no sooner was she out of sight than somebody noticed there was a shoe left behind. No, it is not a glass slipper. It is a dark blue suede. suede. It's a blue suede shoe, lady. Yeah, it's a blue suede shoe. That's it's a that blue suede shoe, It's very small. It's labelled Midas, M-I-D-A-S. Uh, what it's does not, that even say expensive, there? not even an expensive label. Yeah. Glorify 36 is what it says. So That's it's a, quite a small shoe, and there's only one of them. It's unfortunate it wasn't actually thrown like some shoes have been thrown at different leaders in different places at different times. Yes. But uh, it's quite a nice little, uh, you know, a, a wedge heel. Uh, very small, very small feet, mm. very small feet. I thought you'd have bigger feet than that. Yeah. She's quite a tall, large woman, well, isn't she? Well, you know, I don't know actually how tall she is in real life, but uh, she doesn't seem particularly small when she's on no. television. No, it's not. And I, mean. I know that uh, she's a strong woman, but she's strong in all the wrong ways. That's you right. You know, and the Charlie ways... used her strength for goodness The ways she has betrayed the Aboriginal people by continuing on this uh, intervention... It, absolutely shameful, mm. almost as shameful as the way she has been so inhumane to the refugees who are people looking def desperately for a safe place to live and raise their children. Mm. And after all, everybody but the Aboriginal people, that is us, mm. everyone else but us is a boat person, figuratively or literally. Well said. So you heard that, folks, eBay. Um, I will get more details about that, but I reckon it'll be up there in the next week or so on eBay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give yeah. us till the, at least till Sunday because we've got to get back to Sydney and we've got three days of uh, careful discussion. And, uh, you know, believe me, we the fact that uh, Tony Abbott said two days ago that he wasn't really sure whether his side of politics were prepared to support the yeah. changes to the Constitution. Well, Tony, I've got news for you. We don't give a damn whether you support us or not. We waited two and uh, a quarter centuries. Two and a quarter centuries to get mentioned in the Constitution. Now it's all too late. Yeah. It's too damn late. We are not even recognised in any way on the Australian flag. That also is too damn late. It's too late to try and treat us with respect, the respect that we should have had and deserved right from the beginning. It's too damn late. It's all too late. Uh, <coughs> we have given up talking about sovereignty. We've given up trying to get respect from you people. Most most non-Aboriginal people still write Aboriginal with a small a so that it's just an adjective. Or, or they call us Aborigines when there are in fact Aborigines in the mountains of, uh, of southern India and there are Aborigines in uh, Indonesia. We're tired of being called Aborigines and we're certainly not going to argue with all you people who think that because you're born somewhere in Australia that you're... Uh, that you are Indigenous. You know, Indigenous is supposed to mean much more than that. But what you're going to wake up to by the end of this week, you're going to see Aboriginal people for the first time claiming our own sovereignty. We're not going to talk to any of you about what we might get. We're not asking for anything. We are going to be telling you, and we're going to be telling you that we want 
all sorts of, you know, we haven't really come down to the final details, but I personally think we should have 2% of GDP and we should have 2% of corporate profits. You know, if they can make profits out of living on our land, then they can pay for it. Now, I think pay the rent at 2%. And if you don't understand that, just come and ask me and I'll tell you again. And that was the late Auntie Pat Etock, staunch Aboriginal activist and 1972 embassy veteran, speaking with Johnny Harding live from the Tent Embassy in 2012. Poet and writer, the late Auntie Ujuru Nunakal of the Nunakal people of Minjeriba, North Stradbroke Island, here presents one of her poems, The Dispossessed and provides context on the poem's creation in the 1960s. Peace was yours, Australian man, with tribal laws you made, till white colonials stole your peace with rape and murderade. They shot and poisoned and enslaved until a scattered few, only a remnant now remain, and the heart dies in you. The white man claimed your hunting grounds and you could not remain. They made your workers menial for greedy private gain. Your tribes are broken vagrants now, wherever whites abide. And justice of the white man means justice to you denied. They bought you Bibles and disease, the liquor and the gun. With Christian culture such as these, the white command was won. A dying race, you linger on, degraded and oppressed. Outcasts in your own native land, you are the dispossessed. I wrote The Dispossessed uh, in the early 60s when we were trying to gather up uh, people to form the civil rights movement. And what inspired me to write The Dispossessed was um, there were those in the political world who were extreme left-wingers and there was extreme right-wingers, the Aboriginals were right in the middle, and they were all trying to get possession of the Aboriginal people. And this has been going on for the last 200 years, you know, they talk about the Aboriginals as our blacks. So I stood up and said, why don't you just stop and ask the Aborigines what they want? And of course, everything broke loose and I went out very disillusioned and very bitter and very angry and I went home that night and I put down in draft form a poem which finally became The Dispossessed. The condition for Aboriginals during that period of time was very bad. We have the highest rate of infant mortality in the world, we still have it. 17 of our children dies against one in the white world in this lucky country called Australia. We have the highest leprosy rate in the world in Western Australia in this so-called luck, lucky country. Now in the Australian years BC, and by that I mean before Cook, um, we were a disease-free race of people and all these diseases came in. I heard the voices of my people and every time I heard a story like that, I went home and I wrote a poem about it. And that was Nunakal poet and writer, the late Auntie Ujuru Nunakal of Minjeriba, speaking in 1992 and providing context to one of her poems, The Dispossessed. Across these stolen lands now called Australia, you have been listening to Women on the Line. 
highlighting a range of gender non-conforming and women voices and broadcast across the continent on the Community Radio Network. The Aboriginal Tent Embassy has continually occupied the lawns in front of the now old Parliament House over the past 50 years. This Invasion Day, January 26, marks this anniversary, commemoration and continuing protest on the conditions relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples across so-called Australia. Most of the reforms relating to land rights, truth and repertory justice has come from the self-determination of the embassy. Next, we're going to hear parts of a conversation on the embassy's history and a response to the misinformation circulating around recent events, including the fire that was lit at Old Parliament House a few weeks ago. And this conversation is between Wiradjuri poet and podcaster Lorna Munro and Yambri woman Leah House. It was originally broadcast on Instagram Live on Monday, January 17th. And we air this conversation with permission. For the last couple of weeks, um, both Leah and I have been people that have been um, trying to unpack a lot of the misinformation that's out there. A lot of the um, conversations around what's happening and why it's important to call out what it is, you know, that the embassy had nothing to do with that. And I know that that's not been what has been projected out to everybody else. To just give some context why we've decided to make a live and why we've been covering kind of as the events have been unfolding, kind of utilising our platforms to speak up a bit, sis. Well, my name's Lorna Munro. I'm a Radri Gomeroy poet and podcaster. Um, I... I do a lot of things in my community. I grew up in Redfern, Waterloo in Sydney. Um, and my parents, um, you know, have been involved with the 10 Embassy since they were teenagers. I think my mum was 16 when she first went to the embassy. Um, you know, my, uh, my uncle was one of the four men um, that initially sat down and, and uh, under um, the, you know, umbrella the makeshift tent that they set up in 1972 on invasion day um i've grown up hearing a lot of these stories from the very people who experience these things you know all of these people that have been quoted um by academics and yeah a lot of people that people might know when they talk about black history um aboriginal political history um you know our modern day Black political consciousness today, you know, those those are people like Aunt Isabel Coe, uh, Uncle Billy Craigie, Uncle Paul Coe, you know, my mum, Jenny Munro, my dad, Lyle Munro, um, their parents were even involved. You know, my grandmothers uh, were both very visible in um, the land rights movement. Mm -hmm. And I guess too, you know, I tend to refer to this group of people, this generation of people that um, really changed history for us um that my mum and you know them mob were a part of um we i refer to them as a black power movement you know some people will refer to them as a land rights mob you know because of the land rights movement and the land rights act and um what's happened ever since 
you know, the whole native title debacle and, and what that looks like now. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people really um, really kind of brush over this history and it um, it's something that everybody, especially all of our mob, um, need to understand because these are the people um, that fought for a lot of the a lot of the services and a lot of the things that exist in our communities today that Mm -hmm. didn't before you know my mum and dad they lived on a mission Mm um you know they they come from a mission like the same mission you know your grandmother come from um we actually we're related you know through the maternal bloodlines Mm um and you know people really need to understand that these were concentration camps for our people you know Mm -hmm. it's not that that history is not that long ago Mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I actually, like, teach a lot of people about these things, um, trying to put the fire back in the, the people's bellies, I guess, um, you know, and just really reminding people how deadly, how resilient, you know, what we've survived. Mm-hmm. And that's a conversation, um, you know, that needs to happen all the time and not just in January on the lead-up to Invasion Day. My name's Leah House. I'm an Ambry woman. Um so here in Canberra is my ancestral country. Um, so I've lived here my whole life. I've spent a couple of years up in Townsville. Um, but other than that, yeah, I've been in Canberra my whole life. Um, my nan is Matilda House. So that's where my connection to the Ten Embassy comes from. My nan was there back in 72. I think she was 27 years old back then. And I Jen was, yeah, 16, 17. So mm. about 10 years age gap between Lorna's mum and my nan. Um, so we kind of have always had that connection to the Ten Embassy, just visiting that space and being immersed in that space because that's our family's history since its establishment back in 72. So it's weird, like, having to explain who I am because, every, like, most people in Canberra know who I am and what I do. And, like, my entire career has been on the front line uh, with my community. I've worked in community legal centres and that working with really closely with um, care and protection, um, working out at the jail. I just, my entire career since I started working has been on the front line with my community. So, okay, so we did have a conversation before this all started and we did say, because a lot of the questions were like, what is the 10 Embassy? Um, Kind of like long-term, short-term goals of it. And um, we kind of did agree that that we're not going to go too in-depth with that because there's so much, like, at everybody's fingertips. For everybody that's watching this right now, it means you've got access to the internet, which means you can access Google. You can kind of do that work yourself. So we were just kind of, at, at this point, it's there's no excuse in 2022 to not be accessing that information yourself, kind of. But did you, like, want to touch on, like, what the 10 Embassy is I would just say Google is free. You, Everyone has access to this information. I've been sharing a lot of information. Leah's been sharing a lot of information and a lot of resources. There's a lot of documentaries um, that, you know, are out there. Um, I'm actually, I've just paid for Ningla'ana, which was one that was um, filmed in 1972. So it's got a lot of that archival footage and shows a lot of... Um, you know, our elders and our esteemed um, um, orators and black mm-hmm. thinkers in their prime, you know, in their prime years. 
So I would direct people to those resources. But for me, you know, growing up as a kid, going down there, um, it was always explained to me that that was that was a little piece of land rights um, after we had been dis- denied so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was always told that, you know, we were aliens in our own lands mm-hmm. and everybody else had an embassy in Canberra because it's the national capital. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's why they set up the embassy. Um, you know, those four men and Uncle Billy Craigie, um, was someone who, you know, I was very privileged to be able to um, hear those stories from himself growing yep. up. Yeah. You know, he was, the, he was the person that turned the Aboriginal flag upside down. A lot of people don't understand this. The flag, mm-hmm. the Aboriginal flag was originally designed with the red on top, mm-hmm. you know, and as soon as it got to, um, they were having competitions trying to, you know, um, unify mob and have some kind of visibility. Um, um, and I think it was it was Gary Foley that took the flag there. And as soon as the flag got there, it was Uncle Billy who turned it upside down to signify an international call for distress. You know, mm-hmm. so our generation, you know, if we see it original with the red on top, Mm-hmm. A lot of people our age are like, oh, that's wrong, that's wrong. And it's like, mm-hmm. actually, that's how it was originally designed. Mm-hmm. You know, and I talk about this because I've got a poem about um, the flag. I talk about this as, you know, what that means symbolically is that there's been a few generations now that are, have been born that know nothing but mm-hmm. our flag being a sign of distress and they don't mm-hmm. even know it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just wanted to make that point too, you know, even them fellas down there turning the flag um, back right way up yeah. and trying to say that that's an international call for distress. They don't know this history. They don't bother to learn about it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's, it's a part of the oral history. It's a part mm-hmm. of that, um, you know, those stories that we've grown up with. It's not something that you could easily find online as well. You know, yeah. we're, the, we're the keepers of those stories now. For those black men and those brave men and women back then to go and do that, to set up an embassy in their own country. Um, the symbolism behind that has just stood the test of time, I, the way I see it in my generation. Um, it was such an original stunt to pull, like, that it had never been done before. It will never be duplicated, like what those men and women did. So, yeah, I think the symbolism behind it speaks volumes that it's still here 50 years on. Well, Which... It was very smart, you know, it was very smart. They found loopholes that yep. meant no one could move them, you know. They had politicians trying to create laws and policy to, mm-hmm. you know, get rid of them. Mm-hmm. And um, it stood the tef- test of time. And mm-hmm. that's all that, you know, great black thinking yep. and understanding their law. And not for that to take precedence over ours, mm-hmm. but in order to navigate that system they had to learn it the next thing we just had was just about 50 years now did you want to just say like a little plug for the 50th well definitely it it wasn't a coincidence that they went down there on the morning of invasion day Mm -hmm. um you know in sydney um leading up to that they were really honing in on the theatrics around politics and around Mm -hmm. political actions um you know, there's some 
<clears throat> I think that that's something that's missing um, from our movement a bit is mm -hmm. those theatric, not manipulating media, but piquing the interest of the rest of the world so that mm -hmm. me Australian media had to report about it. You know, mm -hmm. it was very, very clever. Going mm -hmm. over there to England, planting a flag and, and claiming, you know, the British Isles for our yep. mob. All of those things, brilliant. But, you know, the 50th is coming up. Um, it's on Invasion Day, like I said. Um, mm -hmm. And it is the world's longest running protest site. And I think um, a lot of the commentary I've seen, kind of the negative side of things that I have when I am like putting the energy into reading comments has been around like, what are we celebrating for? But I think something I wanted to like lay out there was that it's the 50 years on that anniversary. It's, it's not just a celebration. It's, it's going to be a time to reflect and to grieve and mourn. And there's going to be so many tears um, because yeah. 50 years on we're celebrating 50 years of occupying that space and what's come out of the embassy in those 50 years. Um, mm -hmm. But we'll also be mourning for, you know, the lives that aren't here 50 years on. Um, and that's, you know, heavily due to the life expectancy of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, those people that were there in 72, a, a lot of them are long gone. So there's going to yeah. be, and going to be an emotional time. It's not like we're just jumping up and down, celebrating, thinking the job's done. Yeah, definitely. You know, that's such an important point. There's a very small number Mm -hmm. of people that were around in 1972 that are still alive. Yeah. You know, our old people are um, a part of that very small cohort, yeah. which is, I guess, you know, the reason why we're defending their right to be able to reflect and commemorate, um, yeah. you know, but also you've brought it back to a, a very important point, which is <clears throat> that them, that these mob, this black power movement, they were inspired by the great black thinkers and orators of the generations before. Mm -hmm. You know, it was Jack Patton, uh, William Ferguson, all of the great black thinkers from 1938 Day of Mourning, which was the first time yeah. that Aboriginal people declared it a day of mourning while mm -hmm. the rest of the country was celebrating. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they're mourning the, the death of, of many nations mm -hmm. because... We, we don't need to get into that history of 1788. Mm -hmm. um, again, you can all go and have a look at that and why this date is so contentious. You know, I just wanted to bring that back um, to that, to that, to them day of mourning mob. The next one I had on here was a summary of like from the ground, from the embassy's perspective and from your perspective, Lorna, um, from where you are of what's kind of unraveled since December. But I don't really want to give it too much energy. I know what you mean. I, I guess I would just say even me here in Waterloo watching all this stuff unravel on the 30th, which was the day that they set light to the Parliament House. Yeah. Uh, for me, that's all my family involved with the embassy. Mm -hmm. You know, there's not a lot that happens at the embassy that, that our elders aren't told about. Uh, mm -hmm. And I guess that that's the thing that gets lost on a lot of people is that, you know, we don't make big decisions unless there's consensus. You know, we don't make decisions unless everybody agrees and understands. So for me, you know, while everyone was saying it's such a great day to watch the, the colony burn, for me, it was such a red flag because I've seen white people there holding 
the fire and screaming out at coppers saying this is our land and talking about sovereignty. For me, yeah. that was a huge red flag. Yeah, well, on the ground from my end, it started earlier in December. I can't remember the exact date, maybe around the 15th, but it started off with um, posts coming from the embassy with this lot that had come down and um, they were the words they were using were the first red flag for me. They were talking about come down and learn about um, and get mythically enlightened. So and that that what? phrase mythical enlightenment was the first red flag, and that was like earlier in December. But I don't want to go into that too much, sis. It's it's not. It's at the end of the day, it's nobody's business. Like what we do with the, in that space, that's the ten embassies' business. On the ground, from my end, it was a shit show from the beginning. Um, it was so obviously being led by people that didn't have First Nations bodies and land best interests at heart. So I actually chose to not engage with any of that lot when they were like kind of putting call outs in Canberra to come down. I kind of was like not interested in it. I think a lot of our communities spotted it from the start that this wasn't mm -hmm. a spec for us. Any black body that is aware of the space and the movement would have picked it out pretty early on. But it is unfortunate that the mob that did fall for the nonsense and the bullshit, I do genuinely, I still have love for those mob but at the same time their vulnerabilities and their trauma have been so horrendously abused and manipulated manipulated and Definitely. it's really sad to watch and we hope to go more into this um yep. QAnon you know proud boys I'm up um you know neo-nazi um connections to all of this sort of stuff this is the thing too I guess that a lot of people don't realize we know who these groups are because they agitate us all the time. And that's why we've got people within our circles that have been monitoring them and surveilling them for as long as they've been popping their heads up. And, you mm -hmm. know, um, unfortunately, the pandemic has created a lot of lost, um, vulnerable souls, um, yep. you know, that really believe um, that they will be saved by these yep. races unfortunately yeah from the fire like when all that happened and then we all got together pretty quickly and kind of mobilized to get on the same page because we all knew like it was it was escalating um and it got to that point um and i think people a lot of the conversation was around the 10 embassies now trying to distance itself from this but i think what people don't understand is the 10 embassy wasn't actually involved in it the 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 bodies that were on the ground representing the embassy we're not representing the embassy and that's that'll get made clear down the track when the embassy does kind of put more media statements out but the yeah. embassy never really actually involved in this whatsoever so it's not that they were trying to distance themselves it's that they were trying to take some leadership to say you know what we're the ones that are going to have to wear this the non-indigenous people that are going to walk away from this at the end of the day it's not going to reflect on them it's going to reflect on our local Aboriginal community and the communities that these these people that are claiming to be representing and it's going to reflect on the embassy. So leadership has to be shown in that moment and it was shown and if it was never the embassy. Yeah, and so, these, you know, these white people involved, they're going to go back to celebrating our genocide on the 26th. You watch. And that was Wiradjuri poet and podcaster Lorna Munro and Yambri woman Leah House. Talking about the world's longest running protest site, the Aboriginal Tent Embassy, in the lead up to its 50 year anniversary. And so this invasion day 
The embassy is holding a three-day event on the 25th, the 26th and the 27th of January. So to find out more, you can visit atesovereignty.com.au and that's their website or you could Google Aboriginal Tent Embassy. The embassy is currently fundraising on shuff.org to help support the preparation costs in the lead up to this three-day event. So you can access the fundraiser via the Tent Embassy website. And that's all we have time for today. We'd love to hear your comments or thoughts about the program. So please send us an email to womenontheline at gmail.com or give us a call at 3CR on 03 9419 You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter or listen back to our programs on your favourite podcasting app. Women on the Line is a national feminist current affairs program and we have funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The theme music for our shows is by Ripley Kavara and our programs can be downloaded from 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. I'm Shahrazad Blue and tune in again next week to hear more Women on the Line content on your local community radio station. <laughs>